Chapter 27 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 27, Rest But Not Rust. In the summer of 1855, previous to my financial troubles, feeling that I was independent and could retire from active business, I sold the American Museum collection and goodwill to Messrs. John Greenwood, Jr. and Henry D. Butler. They paid me double the amount the collection had originally cost, giving me notes for nearly the entire amount secured by a chattel mortgage, and hired the premises from my wife, who owned the museum property lease, and on which, by the agreement of Messrs. Greenwood and Butler, she realized a profit of $19,000 a year. The chattel mortgage of Messrs. Greenwood and Butler was, of course, turned over to the New York assignee with the other property. And now there came to me a new sensation, which was at times terribly depressing and annoying. My widespread reputation for shrewdness as a showman had induced the general belief that my means were still ample, and certain outside creditors who had bought my clock notes at a tremendous discount and entirely on speculation made up their minds that they must be paid at once without waiting for the slow process of the sale of my property by the assignees. They therefore took what are termed supplementary proceedings, which enable them to haul me any day before a judge for the purpose, as they phrased it, of putting Barnum through a course of sprouts, and which meant an examination of the debtor under oath, compelling him to disclose everything with regard to his property, his present means of living, and so on. I repeatedly answered all questions on these points, and reports of the daily examinations were published. Still another and another, and yet another creditor would haul me up, and his attorney would ask me the same questions which had already been answered and published half a dozen times. This persistent and unnecessary annoyance created considerable sympathy for me, which was not only expressed by letters I received daily from various parts of the country, but the public press, and now and then an exception, took my part, and even the judges, before whom I appeared, said to me on more than one occasion, that as men they sincerely pitied me, but as judges, of course, they must administer the law. After a while, however, the judges ruled that I need not answer any question propounded to me by an attorney, if I had already answered the same question to some other attorney in a previous examination, in behalf of other creditors. In fact, one of the judges, on one occasion, said pretty sharply to an examining attorney, This, sir, has become simply a case of persecution. Mr. Barnum has many times answered every question that can properly be put to him to elicit the desired information, and I think it is time to stop these examinations. I advise him to not answer one interrogatory which he has replied to under any previous inquiries. These things gave me some heart, so that at last I went up to the Sprouts with less reluctance and began to try to pay off my persecutors in their own coin. On one occasion, a dwarfish little lawyer, 
who reminded me of Quilp, commenced his examination in behalf of a note shaver who held a thousand-dollar note, which it seemed he had bought for seven hundred dollars. After the oath had been administered, the little limb of the law arranged his pen, ink, and paper, and in a loud voice, and with a most peremptory and supercilious air, asked, "'What is your name, sir?' I answered him, and his next question, given in a louder and more peremptory tone, was, "'What is your business?' "'Attending bar,' I meekly replied. "'Attending bar,' he echoed, with that appearance of much surprise. "'Attending bar? Why, don't you profess to be a temperance man? A teetotaler?' "'I do,' I replied. "'And yet, sir, do you have the audacity to assert that you peddle rum all day and drink none yourself?' i doubt whether that is a relevant question i said in a low tone of voice i will appeal to his honor the judge if you don't answer it instantly said quilp in great glee i attend bar and yet never drink intoxicating liquors i replied where do you attend bar and for whom was the next question i attend the bar of this court nearly every day for the benefit of two penny would-be lawyers and their greedy clients i answered a loud tittering in the vicinity only added to the vexation which was already visible on the countenance of my interrogator and he soon brought his examination to a close on another occasion a young lawyer was pushing his inquiries to a great length when in a half-laughing apologetic tone he said you see mr barnum i am searching after the small things i am willing to take even the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table which are you, Lazarus, or one of the dogs? I asked. I guess a bloodhound would not smell out much on this trail, he said, good-naturedly, adding that he had no more questions to ask. I still continued to receive many offers of pecuniary assistance, which, whenever proposed in the form of a gift, I invariably refused. In a number of instances, personal friends tendered me their checks for five hundred dollars one thousand dollars and other sums but i always responded in substance oh no i thank you i do not need it my wife has considerable property besides a large income from her museum lease i want for nothing i do not owe a dollar for personal obligations that is not already secured and when the clock creditors have fully investigated and thought over the matter i think they will be content to divide my property among themselves and let me up just after my failure and on account of the ill health of my wife i spent a portion of the summer with my family in the farmhouse of mr charles howell at west hampton on long island the place is a mile west of quogue and was then called ketchabonic the thrifty and intelligent farmers of the neighborhood were in the habit of taking summer boarders and the place had become a favorite resort mr howell's farm lay close upon the ocean and i found the residence a cool and delightful one surf bathing fishing shooting and fine roads for driving made the season pass pleasantly and the respite from active life and immediate annoyance from my financial troubles was a very great benefit to me our landlord was an eccentric character who took great pleasure in showing me to his friends and neighbors as the museum man and consequently as a great curiosity for in his estimation 
the American Museum was chief among the institutions of New York. He was in a habit of gathering shells and such rarities as came within his reach, which he took to the city and disposed of at the museum. He often spoke of certain phenomena in his neighborhood, which he thought would take well with the public if they were properly brought out. One day he said, Mr. Barnum, I am going to Moriches this morning, and I want you to go along with me and see a great curiosity there is there. What is it? I asked. It is a man who has got a natural honk, replied Howell, and it is worth fifty dollars a year to him. A what? I inquired. A honk, a honk, a perfectly natural honk. He makes fifty dollars a year out of it, Howell reiterated. I could not comprehend what a honk was, but concluded that if it was worth fifty dollars a year among the Long Island fishermen and farmers, who could hardly be expected to pay much for mere sightseeing, it would be much more valuable to exhibit in the museum. So I remarked that as I was authorized by Messrs. Greenwood and Butler to purchase curiosities for them, I would go with him and buy the honk from its possessor if I could get it at a reasonable price. Buy it, exclaimed Hal. I guess you can't buy it. You don't seem to understand me. The man has got a natural honk, I tell you. That is, he honks exactly like a wild goose. When flocks are flying over, he goes out and honks, and the geese, supposing that some goose has settled and is honking for the rest of the flock to come down and feed, all fly towards the ground, and he lets into him with his gun, thus killing a great many, and in this way his honk is worth fifty dollars a year to him, and perhaps more. I decided not to attempt to buy the honk, but my eagerness to do so, and my entire ignorance of the character of the curiosity furnished food for laughter to Howell and his neighbors for a long time. One morning we discovered that the waves had thrown upon the beach a young black whale, some twelve feet long. It was dead, but the fish was hard and fresh, and I bought it for a few dollars from the men who had taken possession of it. I sent it at once to the museum, where it was exhibited in a huge refrigerator for a few days, creating considerable excitement, the general public considering it a big thing on ice, and the managers gave me a share of the profits, which amounted to a sufficient sum to pay the entire board bill of my family for the season. This incident both amused and amazed my Long Island landlord. Well, I declare, said he, that beats all. You are the luckiest man I ever heard of. Here you come and board for four months with your family, and when your time is nearly up and you are getting ready to leave, out rolls a black whale on our beach, a thing never heard of before in this vicinity, and you take that whale and pay your whole bill with it. I wonder if that ain't providential. Why, that beats the natural honk all to pieces. This was followed by such a laugh as only Charles Howell could give, and like one of his peculiar sneezes, it resounded, echoed, and re-echoed through the whole neighborhood. Soon after my return to New York, something occurred which I foresaw, I thought, at the time, was likely indirectly to lead me out of the wilderness into a clear field again, and, indeed, it eventually did so. Strange to say, my new city, which had been my ruin, was to be my redemption, and dear East Bridgeport, 
which plunged me into the slough was to bring me out again dear as the place had literally proved to me it was to be yet dearer in another and better sense hereafter the now gigantic wheeler and wilson sewing machine company was then doing a comparatively small yet rapidly growing business at watertown connecticut the terry and barnum clock factory was standing idle almost worthless in east bridgeport and wheeler and wilson saw in the empty building the situation the ease of communication with new york and other advantages precisely what they wanted provided they could procure the premises at a rate which would compensate them for the expense and trouble of removing their establishment from watertown it is enough to say here that the clock factory was sold for a trifle and the wheeler and wilson company moved into it and speedily enlarged it i felt then that this was providential the fact that the empty building could be cheaply purchased was the main motive for the removal of this watertown enterprise to east bridgeport and was one of the first indications that my failure might prove a blessing in disguise it was a fresh impulse towards the building up of the new city and the consequent increase of the value of the land belonging to my estate many persons did not see these things in the same light in which they were presented to me but i had so long pondered upon the various means which were to make the new city prosperous that i was quick to catch any indication which promised benefit to east bridgeport the important movement of the wheeler and wilson company gave me the greatest hope and moreover mr wheeler kindly offered me a loan of five thousand dollars without security and as i was anxious to have it used in purchasing the east bridgeport property when sold at public auction by my assignees and also in taking up such clock notes as could be bought at a reasonable percentage i accepted the offer and borrowed the five thousand dollars this sum with many thousand dollars more belonging to my wife was devoted to these purposes it seemed as if i had now got hold of the thread which would eventually lead me out of the labyrinth of financial difficulty in which the jerome entanglement had involved me though the new plan promised relief and actually did succeed even beyond my most sanguine expectations eventually putting more money into my pocket than the jerome complication had taken out yet i also foresaw that the process would necessarily be very slow in fact two years afterwards i had made very little progress but i concluded to let the new venture work out itself and it would go on as well without my personal presence and attention perhaps even better growing trees money at interest and rapidly rising real estate work for their owners all night as well as all day sundays included and when the proprietors are asleep or away and with the design of cooperating in the new accumulation and of saving something to add to the amount i made up my mind to go to europe again i was anxious for a change of scene and for active employment and equally desirous of getting away from the immediate pressure of troubles which no effort on my part could then remove while my affairs were working out themselves in their own way and in the speediest manner possible i might be doing something for myself and for my family accordingly leaving all my business affairs at home in the hands of my friends 
Early in 1857, I set sail once more for England, taking with me General Tom Thumb and also little Cordelia Howard and her parents. This young girl had attained an extended reputation for her artistic personation of little Eva in the play of Uncle Tom, and she displayed a precocious talent in her rendering of other juvenile characters. With these attractions, and with what else I might be able to do myself, I determined to make as much money as I could, intending to remit the same to my wife's friends for the purpose of repurchasing a portion of my estate when it was offered at auction, and of redeeming such of the clock notes as could be obtained at reasonable rates. End of chapter 27 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona